Good morning, everybody. Hello, Bosch Amers. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm sorry the church is so empty, but it's good to know that you guys are out there and listening and watching. My, uh, my, my father is an author. He's written 17 books. He's sold over 200,000 copies. His best-selling book is a book called Let's Both Win. It's all about marriage. His worst-selling book, the book that didn't do particularly well, uh, is this book on your screen. It's called A Man Without Ambition. I think that's why the book didn't sell particularly well, because of the title. It is his autobiography. It's probably the most apt title uh, for his life, a life that was very lived, very fulfilled, very significant, very successful, and yet a man without personal ambition. He and I have debated and argued about that for as long as I can remember. He says, I'm a servant of God. No servant tells his master what he's going to do. I just live my life in obedience and wait for opportunities. I'm saying, no, Dad, we need to be far more ambitious because ambition drives kingdom growth. And the two of us just disagree. So my dad says, nope, uh, you know, uh, it's wrong to follow your personal ambitions. I'm saying Jesus followers need to be far more ambitious. And so the question to you really is, what do you think? Where do you stand on that issue? Uh, Yay or nay? Well, I need to tell you, if you voted with the older generation and you feel that it is wrong to pursue your own ambitions, you are right. (laughs) If you chose to uh, vote with the younger generation, the generation Xers to say, no, Jesus' followers should be far more ambitious, you're also right. All right? Both right. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. You have it, I have it. It's a thing that makes us move forward, strive for more things to make something better and bigger, uh, to make us, you know, strives for us to make, to, to want to kind of have more opportunities, if you like. So it's not ambition that's wrong. It's the nature of ambition. Paul, the guy that wrote a significant part of the New Testament and still influences Western culture today, says this, uh, my ambition, his words, not mine, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been Heard. And he also encouraged us later in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians uh, to make the most of every opportunity. If that's not ambition, I don't know what is. As Jesus follows, we are called to be ambitious for Christ. Ambition is good, but ungodly, selfish ambition can be damaging and destructive. And we need to be careful of that. Jesus warns against that. He says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, talk about ambition, and yet forfeit your soul. So scripture makes it clear that ambition is not the problem, it's the nature of ambition. So dad, you and I were on the same page all along. You could have let me write the forward to your book after all. So what else did Jesus say about ambition? In the parable of the talents, Jesus actually says ambition is good as long as you use your gifts for God's glory. And in fact, whenever ambition turns up, uh, Jesus doesn't shoot it down. He just redirects ambition. In fact, a great example of uh, Jesus redirecting ambition and making it more appropriate is in the Last Supper during the Passover. He sat with his disciples. He's just washed their feet, the thing that the lowliest servant gets to do. He's just told them he's going to die for them and give his life for them. And how do his friends, how do his disciples respond? Well, the Bible says they began to argue amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest selfish ambition. The message says they started bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. And Jesus intervenes. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't shame them. He doesn't say shame on you for having ambition, you know, kill that ambition, bury that desire for greatness. Jesus helps his disciples to redeem that ambition. 
He says this, Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, but among you, it will be different. Some versions say, not so with you. Those who are, are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. And he basically says, here's how you can be great. Go down, not up. Be a servant, not a king. If you want to be great, be like me, Jesus said. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is a key issue for us as Jesus' followers. What do we do with this selfish ambition that we have? And how do we convert that self-centered ambition, which destroys, into godly ambition? How do we redirect our ambitions? One of the most important issues in our, in our discipleship and our becoming more like Jesus, but especially in a time of COVID, when we're battening down the hatches, when it's survival, how do we take that ambition for survival and turn it into holy ambition? John Stott uh, passed away in July 2011. John Stott, for those of you who don't know, was arguably the best-known evangelical in the world after his longtime friend, uh, Billy Graham. And within a month after John Stott passed away, his autobiography was published, and his autobiography was entitled Godly Ambition. And the thesis of the book was that John Stott was both uh, a Christian seeking to honor God on one hand, and on the other hand, a very talented man who felt he had a, a key role to play in God's kingdom and wanted to play that role. And it's almost as though he was taking two things that were almost incongruous, godliness and ambition, and putting them together. And with that double drive, John Stott did more than most when it came to advancing Christianity in the 20th century. And I love how John explained his own understanding of ambition. Ambitions for God, he said, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. I love that. Something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? Christians should be eager to develop their gifts, widen their opportunities, extend their influence, and be given promotion in their work not to boost their own ego or build their own empire. That's ungodly ambition, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. Ambition is fundamentally a good thing, and it's a God thing. We are not Buddhists, guys. We don't believe that desire is what's wrong with the world. As followers of Jesus, uh, we believe that godly ambition, godly desire is a good thing. The psalmist says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires, the ambitions of your heart. What would a message be without a quote from Jack C.S. Lewis? I loved what C.S. Lewis said. It would seem that our Lord finds, finds our desires not too strong, but too Weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, something you and I couldn't imagine for the last six weeks. We are far too easily pleased. I want to read this to you. Um, it's a quote from James Smith uh, in his book On the Road with St. Augustine. It's going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, so I'm going to ask that you take a big sip of coffee, lower your defenses, don't shoot the messenger, but hear what he's trying to say. James Smith says this, if you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It's sloth. 
passivity, timidity, and complacency. We like to sometimes comfort ourselves by imagining the ambitious are prideful and arrogant. That way, those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep, get to wear that moralizing mantle of humility. But it is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. That's good, but that's ouch. Holy ambition, guys, is not only good and acceptable, it's a must for you and I as Jesus' followers. So, quick introduction. I mean, we're in uh, part five, as Ryan said, of our First Things First series. God has given us as common ground as a, a, common ground as a vision for the city. Uh, we feel called and compelled to fill the city with the message and the life and fame of Jesus. And in essence, the series First Things First is about what makes us us, the, the things that distinguish us from the city and how can we renew the city by being like that. First Things First is a look into the kind of people that God uses to renew a city. And we kicked off with Jesus' work and word first in our lives, uh, a culture of honor, defined joy. Doug spoke about uh, being a people who hunger for God. Last week, Rigby spoke about an overcoming spirit. And I love the fact that Rigby mentioned how we name our kids after biblical heroes like Caleb. And, and Jack and I are guilty of that, man. We have a Joshua, a Rachel, and a Nathan in our home. BBC names. BBC, biblical, but cool, as someone pointed out to me. This final week, though, we're talking holy ambition. We're going to talk about what it looks like to have Christ overhaul our ambition. And Nehemiah is someone who really seems to get that right, a risk taker, a city renewer. In fact, one of the things I love about Nehemiah is he was just an ordinary chap. There, was no, there are no miracles in the book of, of, of Nehemiah. God doesn't turn up in a, in a pillar of cloud or a, or a you know, pillar of fire. Uh, it, it's just prayer, it's strategy, it's hard work, and it's the memoirs of a man with a holy ambition, just Nehemiah. And this is his account, essentially. The story goes something like this. Nehemiah was a Jewish exile living in Persia. The story happens around 444 BC. And to give you a bit of context, the Israel nation had lost its sovereignty as a nation for the past 300 years. The Assyrians first came in and conquered them. And then the Babylonians came in and conquered the Assyrians, and they destroyed the temple, and they carted off the best and brightest of Israel, including the original Fantastic Four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was Babylon. And then Persia came in and conquered Babylon. And Cyrus, the great, the emperor of uh, Persia, basically said to the Jews living in Babylon at the time, well, hey, if you want to go home, you can go home. And so half of the Jewish nation goes back to Judea. The other half stays in Persia or in Babylon, Persia. And and, and, and for the next 100 years, the exiles that return to Judea are trying to fix the city. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. The temple, they're trying to slowly sort of stack up, but it's rough going. And around 90 years into that 100-year journey is where Nehemiah comes into the picture. Now, Nehemiah and his family never left Babylon or Persia. And consequently, over time, have become rather wealthy. And he's a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And his brother comes back to see Nehemiah. His brother went back to Judea. And this is where we pick up from Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah. And then what his brother said to me, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And then this, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response, his broken heart to the news that he heard. I want to look at three things that can help you and I 
turn worldly or self-centered ambition into godly ambition. Three things that John Tyson, I think, laid out so beautifully. The first is this. We need to have a kingdom vision. In other words, we need a vision beyond the boundaries of our own concerns. We live in a world today that is so focused on me, me, Inc. Uh, Am I safe? Am I happy? Are my loved ones safe? And are they sorted? Our primary concern is for our own freedom and our happiness. And that came to the fore during COVID when suddenly we told we can't do this and can't do that. It's, hey, hang on a second. My rights. You know, what about me? Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, now there's a title for a book, Dad, when the Christian church said this, when the Christian church only cares about personal peace and fulfillment, or rather personal peace and affluence, you know, I'm happy enough, or I'm happy and I have enough for those I care about, the church is fundamentally dead. Why? Well, that's because that's what everybody else wants. There's no Christianity in that. There's no gospel in that. Everybody wants what is good for them. How are you and I going to be different from everyone else in the city? How are we going to be salt and light? How do we stand out? How do we be part of the city's change or renewal if we just like everybody else? And guys, I need to say this. I know it's a tough season for many, many people, for many families in our church. And I know there's no immediate relief in sight for so many. And yet we have a father in heaven who knows, who cares, who loves us, who's promised to meet every single need in the midst of our difficult time. So what an opportunity, knowing that, to step out in faith and to look beyond our own needs, as big as they are, to those needs of others around us, to look beyond our own boundaries. I mean, We do that and people are going to lean in. People are going to say, but hang on a second. I want to be part of this group of individuals. Everyone's in need and look at them. They're looking to the community. They're looking to help even even if they have so little themselves. I mean, remember who Jesus turned his disciples' attention to when they were sitting at the back of the synagogue? It was that poor widow who put two copper coins. In fact, the Bible doesn't say two copper coins. It says two very small copper coins into the offertory. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, while she has given everything she had to live on. We have a Father in heaven who doesn't count, he weighs. You know, you ask investors, when's the best time to invest? You invest when the markets are down. When's the best time to invest in the kingdom of God? Well, what about when the chips are down, when everyone is in need, everyone's panicking? And we have an opportunity to look beyond ourselves to those around us to say we can meet a need. That's holy ambition. Mother Teresa passed away in 1997. And thousands of people turned out to obviously see her. Her body was put on display. And it wasn't surprising that she was buried in her her white habit with its blue trim. But what was surprising is she was buried bare feet. And her feet were exposed. They were feet that were gnarled and mangled and just damaged. And whenever she was asked about her feet, she never spoke about it. But after her passing, her sisters felt they needed to tell the world. The missionaries of charity, her organization, were totally dependent on donations. And this is what would happen. Every time they got a donation of shoes, Mother Teresa insisted that she'd be first into that suitcase or box of shoes. And she'd pick the worst possible shoes and take them for herself to make sure that the sisters and the children had better shoes. What a pragmatic example of a woman who had a vision way beyond her own concerns. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, when he taught you and I to pray, think about the Lord's Prayer. He focused on God's glory and our personal needs. 
But I think the order of that is so important. I mean, think about how we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. You know, hang on a second, I think I've got the order wrong. Yes, of course I've got the order wrong. It's our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God's glory first and then our personal needs. That's how Jesus had it. That's what Nehemiah had. He had privilege. He had safety. He had the good life in Persia. The top billing life is a throwback, but he cared more about God's purposes than his very own. And God is looking for people who are going to lift their eyes beyond the boundaries and borders of themselves and their own concerns, because those are the people that renew a city like Cape Town, even in a time of COVID. William Carey, story was a man who burned with ambition, really burned with ambition for God's purpose. He was a missionary to India. He was also a proponent of global mission, but he was a cobbler. And while he was mending shoes and trying to make ends meet, he taught himself languages uh, and all with the goal of wanting to translate the Bible for other people into other languages. He made a map of the world and put it on the wall of his tiny shoe shop. And he prayed this prayer, God, reach the world, use me. God reached the world. Use me. And later he became a school teacher. And while teaching at school, he created tables of all the different nations showing their populations and their religious beliefs so that he knew he could tell others where the greatest need of the gospel was. If that was 1992, he would have created an Excel spreadsheet, but it was 1792. And instead he organized a missionary society and famously preached this message with one single message, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That is holy ambition in a single tweet, if it was 1992. He was trying to wake up his generation to see that God was calling them to the mission fields. It was a generation that said, God is God. If he wants to save the heathens, he can. He doesn't need us. And William Carey was saying, no, but he invites us to be part of what he's doing. He's wanting to work in you and through you. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Okay, so we've said to, to take a selfish and self-centered ambition and convert it into a holy ambition, we need firstly a kingdom vision. Secondly, we need to be discontent. We need that crystallization of discontentedness. That's the moment when you say, enough, no more, this far and no further. It's a spirit of resolve that says things must and will change, and they will change on my watch. I had a chap who came to me a little while ago. He said, Dr. Moll, I just wanted to say hi and tell you that I've lost 53 kilograms in the last eight months. I said, my word, I can probably guess how you did that, but tell me why. And his story was a, was a crystallization of discontent. It was a great story. Well, it was kind of a semi-great story because he was a Man United fan and any Man United fan can't tell a great story. So he's a Liverpool fan. But here's his story. I'm a Man United fan. Every year I buy the you know, Man U kit but I'm extremely obese. I have to order triple XL from the UK. I pay in pounds, I pay import duty, I pay customs, it's expensive. So this year I decided I'm just gonna get the double XL because that's the biggest size we bring into South Africa. He says, I put the man new kit on. I looked into the mirror and I burst into tears, so embarrassed to be as big as I was. And I said, from that day on, no more. 53 kilograms, eight months later, I now wear an XL Man United kit. That moment of discontent, that crystallization, many of us have had that. But what moment will it take for that to be beyond just a personal moment of discontent? What, what breaks your heart as you look around our city? Nehemiah said, that's not all right. I wonder how many people in those 90 years had come back with the same story saying it's bad in Judea. And everyone says, shame, man. We will, we will pray for you here in Persia. Not Nehemiah. Things have got 
to change. Listen to what he says. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And here's that moment of discontent in Nehemiah. He says, then I said, in that moment, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. God, it's got to change, and I'm starting with you. Far too often, we dismiss that discontent. We dismiss it. We ignore it. We, we get distracted. Or worse, we say this, someone's got to do something. Someone else will do it. Two weeks ago, remember the fire here at the Common? Um, I was driving past and noticed a little bit of a fire happening just next to the sidewalk. Uh, but it was, no one was attending it. There was high winds. It was that dry grass. And I thought to myself, someone's got to do something. And then the realization of, well, if not you, then who, Michael? And so for the first time in my life, I phoned the fire brigade or the fire station. I mean, I had to Google their number, call them. Uh, and, and it wasn't the best of calls. You know, where are you, sir? Well, there's a fire on the common. Where is the common? The, the common, the Ronbosch Common. It's, it's opposite the Red Cross Children's Hospital. Where is that? I'm like, I, I, it's in, 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 this road, man, this is, it's Milner Road. It's, yeah, it's Milner Road. Yes. What number Milner Road? <clears throat> It's not a number. It's a big park that's burning. You know, uh, what is, are you on a corner? So yes, I'm on a corner. It's um, it's the corner of Milner, and now I'm in my phone trying to enlarge Apple Maps. But every time you enlarge it, the the, the words of the the streets just stay small, but the roads get bigger, and, and there are no names in the yellow roads anywhere. I mean, it was it was a nightmare. Eventually, Clipfontaine, Clip Clipfontaine, uh, and Milner. And how do you spell that, sir? I'm like, dude, we we just lost a hectare. Of, you know, of fire to, to the fire just because I was terrible at giving directions. I digress. Let's not be that guy and that girl that says someone's got to do something. Why? Well, because someone else will. And you might say, someone's got to do something. Don't say that because someone else will. You're not making any sense. Again, please don't take this the wrong way. God doesn't need you or I to do anything. He's God. He invites us to join him in what he is doing. He wants us to be part of what he's doing. He wants to involve you. Are you being attentive to those invitations, to those uh, people that come across your path, to those opportunities that come up, to those coincidences that aren't really coincidences? We've been invited to be part of God's amazing plan. But hey, if you choose not to, this is not your personality and this is not your thing and you want to bail out that's fine. Someone else is going to do it. And my word, as I say that, that sounds like such a guilt trip. This, it's not that, guys. This is not meant to guilt you into anything. This is an opportunity that God says, I'm inviting you to do a great work. Join me. What breaks your heart as you, as you look around our city? What has God put in front of you that you just can't ignore? Is, is, is it orphans? Is it illiteracy, hunger, injustice, absent fathers, lack of opportunity, forgotten seniors, uh, gender inequality, early childhood development? I mean, there's a list of needs so long that it can just cause analysis, oh, paralysis analysis to, to anyone in Cape Town. Living in South Africa is difficult. I know that. The need can be overwhelming. But the answer is not to do nothing. The answer is to pick something, one thing. What can I do in my community, big or small? Draw a line, take it to God, pray about it like Nehemiah did and ask God, what can I do? Okay, so we've said moving from self-centered ambition to holy ambition, kingdom vision. We need to have that crystallization of discontent. And finally, as I land with this, take radical sacrificial action. 
That's what Nehemiah did. He took his discontent, that moment of discontent, and he took it to God because he knows God can do something about it. And he starts with prayer, and he prays dangerous prayers, uh, covenant prayers, risky prayers. In fact, he, he prays a God you said kind of prayer. Here's what he prays. Please remember, God, that what you told your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, which is where they were, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. Nehemiah is praying, God, you said this. Now please do this. And then God, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah is praying the thing. He's not tiptoeing around. He's not praying vague or polite prayers. He's saying, God, do something and do it now. I think so many of my prayers, our prayers, are unanswerable. God says, I love you, but I, I don't know how to answer your prayer. God, thank you for providing for us and make us a blessing to those around us. How do I answer that, says God? You know, let's pray unpolite prayers, dangerous prayers, prayers that are to the point, like Nehemiah prayed. And here's what happened. Nehemiah prays, and then he takes that radical sacrificial action, and he risks his life serving the king, his wine, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He's looking down, and the king says, dude, you do not look well. What's the matter? And Nehemiah says in his memoirs, then I was terrified, not scared, terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked, well, how can I help you? Can you imagine what Nehemiah must have thought in that moment? Dear God, that is an answer to the prayer I've been praying for days. And his response is lovely. With a prayer to the God of heaven. That's one of those lightning prayers. It's like, oh God, this is the moment. Give me strength. Give me the words. I replied, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Essentially, Nehemiah says to King Artaxerxes, I need some time off, but like a lot of time. I need you to fund the project. I need you to protect me, give me safe passage, make me the governor of the region. And the king did all of that. And the outcome? In 52 days, guys, 52 days. It had been 90 years. In 52 days, Nehemiah and a team rebuilt those walls of Jerusalem. When we have holy ambition, it leads to divine acceleration. How's that for jargon? Divine acceleration, kingdom fruitfulness. There's Nehemiah saw more fruit in 52 days than the previous 90 years combined. Imagine what God could do in 52 days in Cape Town if we prayed like Nehemiah prayed, if we took radical sacrificial action like Nehemiah took. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And so, my question to you is a church, a church that has a heart for the cities. Won't you join us in cultivating a holy ambition? Let something stir within your spirit, move you, change you. Uh, let God turn dreams and turn them into a reality. We need to take that ambition that we have in all of us and turn it into a godly, holy ambition, a kingdom vision, discontent and radical sacrificial action. And the question really is, so where do we start? Well, I want to suggest you've started already. You sang those words just a few moments ago as Mandy and the team led us. Heal my heart, make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Again, that's holy ambition in a nutshell. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause.
guys, I, one last quote from, from James Smith. And again, it's a, it's a quote to balance out what he said earlier. And I want to land with this. He said, resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. In other words, we don't cultivate a holy ambition to get God to love us. It's because God loves us unconditionally that we get to cultivate a holy ambition. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world that he loves. That, that phrase, that, that idea so aptly describes Karim Duval's story. Karim Duval is a, a music composer from Cape Town. She's a multi-instrumental instrumentalist, highly talented one. She's endorsed by Fender Nochal. She's a double graduate from the Berklee College of Music in the USA. Three years ago, Karim had a dream, a kingdom vision that might just bring peace to the gang-ravaged Cape Flats. Um, her dream was called Join Bands, Not Gang. It's an initiative that takes uh, kids in the Cape Flats, Scottsdean, uh, uh, Cryfontaine, and, and uh, puts them into music lessons after school five days a week. Where in the Blue House, 13 Park Avenue in Scottsdean, in Cryfontaine, in the middle of those three gang turf areas, right in the middle of the violence, the 26s, the 27s, and 28s don't mingle. They don't talk to one another. They're at war with one another. There is violence on a daily basis. It's a dangerous place to be, and yet there she is in the blue house. In fact, just this week, the leader of the 27s was gunned down, and everyone's on high alert at the moment. It's a dangerous place. Talk about radical, sacrificial action, but Corinne is there in the blue house teaching these kids to play music. These kids, it, it's become hallowed ground. The, the, the gang members don't mix, but their kids are mixing. They're making friends. They're playing music together. And who knows, maybe one day they might trade guns for guitars. Corinne says this, eventually we hope that the battle of the gangs will be replaced by the battle of the bands. Peace in the Cape Flats. Really, Karin, that's a big vision. Yes, she says. And this is her answer every single time. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. They're releasing, Join Bands Not Gangs is releasing their first music video in two years. It's going to drop at the end of this month. But I asked Corinne if I could show it to you before they launch it. So this is an early release. It's not finalized. It still needs to be color graded. But you guys, Bosch Amers, are getting to see this for the first time more than before anyone else in the world. So be inspired by what she's doing. And while you watch this video, try and look out for Karin because you won't see a single shot of Karin Deval in that music video. The one person with more musical talent than everyone put together is not in the music video. But hey, that's what happens when you take your ambitions and you trade it for a holy ambition. This is joint bands, not gangs.
beautiful. So inspiring. Thank you, Michael. Um, let's just take a moment to consolidate and just give this time to God.